mark of the beast. What is it all about? Now, this subject is probably one of the most debated when it comes to end time events. And it's also one of the most misunderstood subjects. Just the phrase strikes fear and a sense of urgency amongst Christians today. Is it a microchip or a tattoo? Is it some kind of brand or logo that people are forced to wear in their foreheads or right hand? Is it literal or symbolic? We learned about the prophecies of the books of Daniel and Revelation, Daniel chapters 2 and 7, in connection to Revelation chapter 13. And Daniel 2 talks about the statue that was shown to us through King Nebuchadnezzar's dream. God had shown us that the statue was a timeline of prophetic events, particularly showing us the succession of superpowers that would rule the world starting from the head of gold, which was Babylon. Then Daniel 2 says that after Babylon would come the silver empire, which was Medo-Persia. Then Medo-Persia would be conquered by the bronze empire, which was Greece. Then the iron monarchy of Rome would take over to become one of the most powerful empires in the world right before being picked apart and divided by 10 barbarian tribes, three of which are now extinct. Daniel 7 talks about the same exact prophecy except God shows us new information. In Daniel 7, Babylon was represented by a lion with wings, Medo-Persia was represented by a bear with three ribs in its mouth, Greece was represented by a leopard with four heads and wings, and Rome was represented by some kind of dragon with iron teeth. Then Daniel says that out of the head of that dragon was ten horns and then a little horn would sprout out to pluck up three of the first ten horns. This little horn would think to change the prophetic times of God and the law of God. He would speak blasphemy, which a lot of you now know means he would claim to be God on earth and claim to have the power to forgive sin. And Daniel 7 also mentions that the little horn would rule for a time, that's one year, times, that's two years, and a half a time, that's half a year, which would be three and a half years or 1260 prophetic days, which equal to 1260 literal years. These we mention with thorough detail in From Babylon's America, the prophecy movie. And those who are up to date now know that the little horn, which is also the Antichrist power, is identified as none other than the papacy. Then we get to Revelation 13, and things get a lot more interesting. Mic check. I'm recording. You guys probably know me by now. My name is Tilla, and we've been together for a few years now searching for truth. And this time we want to elaborate on something that a lot of people are very confused about. 
There are so many misleading interpretations out there and information out there about the mark of the beast. And some people claim that it's a microchip. Some people claim it to be some kind of tattoo or a logo or some kind of barcode. And some people claim it to be a day of worship. And also, there are some people that think it's on a sprite can that people hold in their hands. And, you know, it seems as if everybody has just been using their own opinions about the whole matter and only a few have actually used scripture to back everything up and you guys will know what I mean when I say everything but in order for us to really know what is the mark of the beast we have to know who the beast is first because it is the beasts mark that we're looking for and it's it's much like hunting for an animal's footprints how would you know what footprint we're looking for if we do not specify which animal it is from. We need to think about the mark of the beast in this exact way. We have to know who the beast is first before we know what his mark is. We've talked about all this before and from Babylon to America part one. And we know now who is the beast of Revelation 13. And we know who is the second beast of Revelation 13. but. Even though we have talked about the Mark of the Beast before in that movie, in that film, we did not really elaborate on it as much as we wanted to because we had no time. And I think it's important to do so. It's important to really know and elaborate on this so that we can know what is the Mark of the Beast. So let's do a little bit of a review. Bible prophecy, when it was written, was written thematically and symbolically. In order for us to understand the symbols, we need to establish a few keys first to unlock the understanding of those symbols. Key number one, what is a beast a symbol of in Bible prophecy? In Daniel 7 and verse 17, talking about prophetic beasts, says, These great beasts which are four, are four kings which shall arise out of the earth. Again, we know that king and kingdom are used synonymously in Bible prophecy, because you cannot have a king without a kingdom, nor can you have a kingdom without a king. Even verse 23 says that the fourth beast shall be the fourth kingdom upon earth. So a beast in Bible prophecy is a political power, a kingdom, a nation, or a superpower. Number two, C. What is the C a symbol of in Bible prophecy? In Revelation 13, John saw a beast that rose out of the sea, and this beast had seven heads and ten horns. And in Revelation 17, John sees this same exact beast that rises out of the sea, this time with a woman sitting on top of it. And in verse 15, the angel reveals to us that the waters which John saw where the whore was sitting on are peoples and multitudes and nations and tongues. So the sea is a symbol for people or a densely populated area. Key number three, what is a horn a symbol of in Bible prophecy? Daniel 7 and verse 24 tell us that a horn also represents a king or a kingdom but Habakkuk 3, talking about God, says that he had horns coming out of his hand and there was the hiding of his power. So horns are also symbolic for power. So horn, 
means king or kingdom or power. Number four, what is blasphemy in the Bible? In John 10, Jesus walked in the temple in Solomon's porch. Then came the Jews round about him and said unto him, How long dost thou make us to doubt? If thou be the Christ, tell us plainly. Then Jesus begins to explain himself to them, to tell them about who he truly is. And Jesus says, I and my Father are one. Then the Jews took up stones again to stone him. And Jesus answered them, Many good works have I showed you from my Father. For which of those works do ye stone me? The Jews answered him, saying, For a good work we stone thee not, but for blasphemy, and because that thou being a man, makest thyself God. Blasphemy definition number one is when a man claims to be God on earth. But this was okay for Christ, because he is God. In Mark 2, Jesus meets a man who was sick with a palsy. And Jesus says to that man in verse 5, Son, thy sins be forgiven thee. And in verses 6 and 7, There were certain of the scribes sitting there, and reasoning in their hearts, Why doth this man thus speak blasphemies? Who can forgive sins but God only? So blasphemy definition number 2 is when a man claims to have the power to forgive sin. But again, this was okay for Christ because He is God and has the power to forgive sin. So blasphemy is when a man claims to be God and when a man claims to have the power to forgive sin. Key number five, 40 and two months, or time, times, and a dividing of time, or three and a half years, or 1260 prophetic days. Now, Revelation 13 says about the beast, And there was given unto him a mouth, speaking great things and blasphemies, and power was given unto him to continue forty and two months. Now in the Hebrew calendar, there's only thirty days per month. Forty-two months times thirty days for each month is twelve hundred and sixty days. But what is a day a symbol of in Bible prophecy? Well, in Numbers 14, after God took Israel out of Egypt, He declares a prophecy saying that Israel will search the land for 40 days. Only thing is, they actually searched the land for 40 literal years. But that's because God says about the prophecy that each day was symbolic of a literal year. In Ezekiel 4, God declares another prophecy about the house of Israel and the house of Judah. He tells Ezekiel to sleep on his left side for 390 days, and on the right side, 40 days. And according to the number of those days, God said, He has laid upon him the years of their iniquity, and that he has appointed him each day for a year. So a day in Bible prophecy equals to a literal year. And so if a day in prophecy is equal to a literal year, and Revelation 13 prophesied about a 42-month period, 30 days each month would be 1260 days in prophecy, then that 1260 prophetic days literally means 1260 years. Simple enough, right? So 40 and 2 months, which is time, times, and the dividing of time, which is also three and a half years, would be 1260 prophetic days, which equal to 1260 literal years. Number six, what is a saint? 
Saint in Hebrew is the word Kodesh, meaning the holy ones, the ones who are set apart. In Greek, the word is Hegios, those who are morally blameless. So the saints are God's chosen people, the people of God who are set apart and who are morally blameless. Key number seven, what is a dragon a symbol of in Bible prophecy? Well, who is the dragon? That's easy. Revelation 12 and verse 9, the great dragon was cast out, that old serpent called the devil and Satan. So in the primary sense, the dragon is the devil. But there is a secondary application. Revelation 12 starting in verse 4, talking about the dragon says, The dragon stood before the woman which was ready to be delivered, for to devour her child as soon as it was born. And she brought forth a man-child, who was to rule all nations with a rod of iron. And her child was caught up unto God and to his throne. Now first of all, what is a dragon? Now you're probably gonna say, Satan. But no. I mean, what is a dragon? It is a beast. And remember, a beast is a symbol for a kingdom or a political power. Now, who was the man-child who is now caught up unto God and to his throne? That would be Jesus Christ. Only Jesus Christ is worthy to ascend into heaven to his Father and unto his throne. Verse 4 says that this dragon, this beast, or this kingdom wanted to devour the man-child, which was Jesus Christ, as soon as he was born. That's a huge clue. Who was the king from which kingdom that tried to kill Jesus Christ as soon as he was born? Well, in Matthew 2, it was King Herod of pagan Rome that ordered to kill all of the sons of Bethlehem under two years old in hopes that Jesus would be one of those that were killed. He felt threatened by Jesus because he had heard the prophecy that one day this child would take hold of rulership. So in the secondary sense, the dragon is also pagan Rome. So the dragon in the primary sense is Satan, and the dragon in the secondary sense is pagan Rome. Key number eight, what is a sword a symbol of in Bible prophecy? Ephesians 6 and verse 17 says that the sword of the spirit is the word of God. So in the primary sense, the sword is the word of God or the Bible. But take a look at Romans 13, talking about the civil power. It says, for rulers are not a terror to good works, but to the evil. Wilt thou then not be afraid of the power? Do that which is good, and thou shalt have praise of the same. For he is the minister of God to thee for good. But if thou do that which is evil, be afraid, for he beareth not the sword in vain. So the sword also means the civil power. So the sword in the primary sense is the Bible or the word of God, and in the secondary sense is the civil power. Key number nine, what is an image in the Bible? In Genesis 1 and verse 26, and God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness. Genesis 5 and verse 3, And Adam lived an hundred and thirty years, and begat a son in his own likeness after his image. In Exodus 20 and verse 4, 
thou shalt not make unto thee any graven image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. So an image in the Bible is the likeness of something. Key number 10. What does it mean to worship? The word worship in Hebrew is the word shaka. And in Greek, it's the word proskuneo. It means to bow down, to crouch, to revere, to prostrate to, or to submit to someone or something. So worship means to bow down and prostrate oneself in submission and obedience to someone or something, usually in a spiritual or religious sense. And lastly, key number 11, a combined beast. Now here's something new. In From Babylon to America, part 1, we learned about the prophecies of the book of Daniel and chapter 7. We have the lion that represent Babylon, the bear that represent Medo-Persia, the four-headed leopard that represent Greece, and the dragon with ten horns that represent pagan Rome. They all represent pagan political parties, political parties that worship the sun. So if we combined all these beasts, that are compiled of these pagan representations, then we would have a lion with one head, a bear with one head, a leopard with four heads, that makes six heads, and a dragon with one head and ten horns. So together they would have seven heads and ten horns. So this combined beast with seven heads and ten horns would be a combined representation of pagan political parties or you can say a kingdom with multiple pagan representations or a universal religion. So here are the keys again. Key number one, the beast. It represents a political power, a kingdom, a nation, or a superpower. Key number two, the sea, representing peoples, multitudes, nations, and tongues, or a densely populated area. Key number three, the horn, which represents a king or a kingdom or power. Key number four, blasphemy. It's when a man claims to be God on earth and when a man claims to have the power to forgive sin. Key number five, 42 months or three and a half years or 1260 prophetic days, representing 1260 literal years. Key number six, saints. The saints are God's people who are set apart and are morally blameless. Key number seven, the dragon representing both Satan and pagan Rome. Key number eight, the sword representing both the Bible and the civil power. Key number nine, an image is the likeness of something. Key number 10, to worship means to bow down and prostrate oneself in submission and obedience to someone or something, usually in a spiritual and religious sense. Worship means to obey someone's commandments. And key number 11, the combined beast. This beast has elements of the lion, the bear, the leopard, the dragon, and it has seven heads and ten horns. This is a political party or kingdom with multiple pagan religions or a universal religion. These are the keys.
Here we go. Revelation 13, starting from verse 1. And I stood upon the sand of the sea and saw a beast rise up out of the sea, having seven heads, ten horns, and upon his horns ten crowns, and upon his heads the name of blasphemy. And the beast which I saw was like unto a leopard, and his feet were as the feet of a bear, his mouth as the mouth of a lion, and the dragon gave him his power, and his seat, and great authority. This beast, or superpower, will have elements of pagan Babylon, pagan Medo-Persia, pagan Greece, and pagan Rome, as indicated by the leopard, the bear, the lion, and the dragon. This means then that this superpower will have a combined pagan religious system. In other words, it will have a universal religion. He will have the name of blasphemy on his heads, which means he will claim to be God on earth, he will claim to be the God of the Bible on earth, and he will claim to have the power to forgive sin. He will receive his power and seat and great authority from Satan and pagan Rome. Now does that sound familiar? Let's keep reading. And I saw one of his heads as it were wounded to death, and his deadly wound was healed, and all the world wondered after the beast. And they worshipped the dragon, which gave power unto the beast, and they worshipped the beast, saying, Who is like unto the beast, who is able to make war with him? And there was given to him a mouth, speaking great things and blasphemies. And power was given unto him to continue forty and two months. So this beast receives a deadly wound. We'll talk about that later. He will be worshipped, again, meaning this will be a religious system and people will obey his commandments. And then the question pops up, who is able to make war with him? It will also be a political power. It's a combination of both religion and state, or a union of religion and state. He will be given a mouth speaking blasphemies. There goes that word again, blasphemy. So this indicates that this beast will have a figurehead or a spokesperson that will claim to be God on earth and claim to have the power to forgive sin. He will rule for 40 and 2 months. That's 1260 days. But we are talking prophecy, so that would mean that this superpower will rule for 1260 years. Let's keep going. And he opened his mouth in blasphemy against God, to blaspheme his name and his tabernacle and them that dwell in heaven. And it was given unto him to make war with the saints and to overcome them. And power was given him over all kindreds and tongues and nations. And all that dwell upon the earth shall worship him whose names are not written in the book of life of the Lamb slain from the foundation of the world. If any man have an ear, let him hear. He that leadeth into captivity shall go into captivity. He that killeth with a sword must be killed with a sword. Here is the patience and the faith of the saints. So again, this superpower will be blasphemous. He will claim to be God on earth and will claim to have the power to forgive sin. Now, four times this is mentioned. This must mean that being blasphemous is the main characteristic of this beast. He will make war with the saints. He will persecute them and overcome them, meaning he will control them and keep them captive. He is given power over the people of all nations, which means he will be a worldwide power. He will lead people into captivity, but he himself will be led into captivity. 
he will kill people with the sword, the Bible and the civil power, but then he himself will be killed also with the sword, the Bible and the civil power. So we have 13 main points here that will help us identify who this beast is. Point number one, it will be a combination of multiple pagan influences. That means a universal religion. Point number two, he will be blasphemous. He will claim to be God on earth and will claim to have the power to forgive sin. Point number three, Satan and pagan Rome gave him his power, his seat and great authority. Point number four, it'll be a union of church and state or religion and state. Point number five, he's given a mouth or a spokesperson or a figurehead. Point number six, he will reign for 1260 literal years. Point number seven, he will be a worldwide power that will persecute God's saints. Point number eight, he will lead people into captivity. Point number nine, he himself will be led into captivity. Point number 10, he will kill people with the sword that is the Bible and the civil power. And point number 11, he himself will be killed with the sword, the Bible and the civil power. Point number 12, he will have a deadly wound. And point number 13, that wound will heal. So these are the 13 points that will help us identify who this beast is. And let me tell you guys real quick. Again, I'm not here to make fun of anybody. I'm not here to ridicule anybody. I'm only here to tell you guys the truth. And that's what I'm here for. There's only one entity in the world that fits all 13 points given to us in Revelation 13. And that would be the papacy. Number one, is the papacy a combination of universal pagan religions? The Christians back in the time of Nero used to be the most persecuted people in the world. Christians used to be captured and then thrown to the lions. They were also being burned at the stake. But the Christians had this peace about them while being persecuted and killed, and people in those days admired that. The people were inspired by it so much that they wanted to become Christians as well. And so, Christians went from being the most persecuted sect to becoming the most elite. If you wanted to advance politically, you had to become a Christian to do so because they were at the top. Meanwhile, the Church of Rome used to be a good church. Then they had this idea to try and evangelize the heathens of those days, which was easy to do because most heathens in those days wanted to convert to Christianity anyway for political gains. And so, pagans would come to the church, but they brought along with them their pagan rituals and beliefs. So what ended up happening was, instead of the church converting pagans into Christianity, the church themselves were being converted into paganism. They started mixing in Christianity with paganism. They brought in elements of pagan Babylonian concepts, pagan Persian concepts, pagan Greek concepts, pagan Roman concepts, Norse mythology, Celtic mythology, Egyptian mythology, you name it. They even started worshipping the sun on the day of the sun or Sunday instead of worshipping God on the Sabbath. This was the main theme of paganism, it's sun worship. They began to bring in idolatry. The statue of Jupiter was renamed after Peter. 
the statue of Hermes became Christ the Good Shepherd. Statues of the Madonna and Child became the glorification of the Virgin Mary and Jesus as an infant. The Church of Rome became the Catholic Church, which means Universal Church. It was like an open invitation for any and every religion to come in and add into the church their own pagan concepts. And we see this happening with the same exact church today. So is the papacy a combination of universal pagan religions? It is. Number two, is the papacy blasphemous? Did they claim to be God on earth? Did they claim to rule or speak and legislate rules for God on earth? Did they claim to have the power to forgive sin? The Archbishop of Venice, prior to becoming Pope Pius X, the Bishop of Rome is not only the representative of Jesus Christ, but he is Jesus Christ himself, hidden under the veil of flesh. Does the Bishop of Rome speak? It is Jesus Christ who speaks. The head of this system claims to be God on earth. In fact, the word Pope means Father. He even calls himself the Holy Father. Does it claim to rule for God on earth? The Great Encyclical Letters to Leo the Thirteenth, page 304. We hold upon this earth the place of God Almighty. It claims to rule for God on earth. Does it claim to have the power to forgive sin? Dignity and Duties of the Priest, page 34. Were the Redeemer, Jesus Christ, to descend into a church and sit in a confessional to administer the sacrament of penance and a priest to sit in a confessional, Jesus would say over each penitent, Ego te absolvo, which is Latin for I forgive you. The priest would likewise say over each of his penitents, Ego te absolvo, and the penitents of each would be equally absolved. What they are trying to say is that if Jesus forgives me of my sins and a Catholic priest forgives you of your sins, we are both equally forgiven. Is that blasphemy? That is blasphemy. The papacy was and still is blasphemous. Number three. Did pagan Rome give the papacy its seat and authority? The History of the Christian Church, Volume 3, page 327. The Roman Church state power became supreme in Christendom in 538 AD due to a letter of the Roman Emperor Justinian known as Justinian's Decree which set up and acknowledged the Bishop of Rome as the head of all churches. It gave the Roman Church state political power, civil power, as well as ecclesiastical power. This letter became part of Justinian's code, the fundamental law of the empire, and that year, Pope Vigilius ascended the throne under the military protection of Belisarius. So who gave the Pope his power, seat, and authority? It was pagan Rome. This brings us to point number four. Is the papacy a union of church and state? Well, the Vatican established its authority in AD 538 as the political power and ecclesiastical power. The Vatican is also the only church in the world that has its own government. In fact, the Vatican is the only church that even has its own army. The papacy is a union of church and state. 
Number five, does it have a man as a figurehead or a spokesperson? That would be the Pope. Number six, did the papacy reign for 1260 years? Remember, the papacy officially gained its power, seat, and great authority from pagan Rome in the year 538 AD. And then in the year 1798 AD, Napoleon became sick and tired of taking orders from the papacy and he sent one of his top generals named Berthier to arrest the Pope and then claimed Rome and ended the Roman Church state. If you do the math, 538 AD to 1798 AD, that would be 1260 years. Number seven, was the papacy a worldwide power that made war with God's people? The Roman church state has shed more Christian blood than any other institution that has ever existed on earth via the Inquisition. Over 100 million Christians were killed by the papacy during a time called the Dark Ages. You know why they called it the Dark Ages? Because the Bible was illegal. If this power caught you with a Bible in your hands, you are immediately taken in for heresy and you are tortured and eventually killed. Which leads us to the last few points. Did the papacy lead people into captivity? Again, the papacy led God's saints into captivity during the Inquisition. Was the Pope himself led into captivity? We know that in 1798, the Pope himself, who had been leading Christians into captivity, was led into captivity by General Berthier. He was then exiled. Did the papacy kill with the sword, the Bible, and civil power? Well, during the Dark Ages, the papacy took the Bible away from the common people and twisted scripture as a means to prove that those true God-fearing and commandment-keeping Christians were heretics. Then the papacy, through the Inquisition, killed God's saints with the civil power. Number 11. Was the papacy killed with the sword, the Bible, and the civil power? Now, if you are a Christian, you are most likely a Protestant. Most Christian denominations are Protestants. Just take some time to research and dig up your church history and you will soon learn about the roots of Protestantism. A man named Martin Luther, one night, got struck by lightning. So he prayed to a dead saint for salvation and in return, he would dedicate his whole life to the church. And so his life was preserved and he did exactly what he said he would do. He thoroughly dedicated himself and became a monk. Then he started doing weird rituals because he was obsessed with wanting his sins to be forgiven. Although some of his ideas weren't biblical, God still worked with him. One day a verse came to his mind. The just shall live by faith not by works nor rituals the just shall live by faith he was mind blown because he had been doing these rituals and they were all in vain he came to the realization that the catholic church have been teaching a whole slew of things that were not biblical at all and so he protested the church and nailed 95 theses on the church door about the unbiblical things that the church was teaching. 
Of course, there were more than 95, but he couldn't fit them all on the church door. The Protestant movement began and people started to really dig deep in the Bible and realized that Martin Luther had just embarked on a whole new truth that people have never heard of before because nobody taught those things that we can only find in the Bible. Soon after, people started to realize through diligent Bible study that the papacy was the little horn of Daniel 7 and the sea beast of Revelation 13. The papacy's power to control the minds of the people went on a steady decline because of the truth of God's word. The papacy was killed with a sword, the Bible. Was the papacy also killed with the civil power? Again, we all know that in the year 1798, Napoleon Bonaparte was sick and tired of taking orders from the Pope and so he sent his general, General Berthier, to arrest the Pope. Then finally, the Pope was killed by the sword, the civil power, when he died during exile. This leads us to the next point. Did the papacy have a deadly wound? Even though the papacy was still around, its power died when the Pope was arrested and killed. This was the deadly wound. And now the Bible says that the papacy's wound would be healed. In the year 1929, Mussolini was the one who reinstated the papacy's power. Although not fully, the papacy's wound began to heal. Now remember, this beast has elements of a leopard, a bear, a lion, and a dragon. These are predators, fierce and strong animals that attack their prey. A predator does not attack when deadly wounded, but as soon as it is fully healed and hungry, it will strike again. The question now is, when will the papacy's deadly wound fully heal? to love those puzzle games when I was a kid. Not just those little picture puzzles, also like the Rubik's Cube, the word puzzles, but there were other puzzles, hard ones to solve, like riddles, kind of like those detective puzzles where you have to do some critical thinking. In order to solve some of those riddles, you have to look at the clues, the context clues. You have to use the process of elimination. Teresa's daughter is my daughter's mother. Who am I? Teresa's daughter is my daughter's mother. Who am I? Are you guys confused yet? This little riddle or whatever went viral not too long ago. I think it was about two years ago, three years ago. And a lot of people had trouble trying to solve this riddle. Teresa's daughter is my daughter's mother. Who am I? It's kind of simple to understand if we just learn how to break down a sentence. 
right? It's pretty simple to understand. Just say it backwards. My daughter's mother is Teresa's daughter. Who am I? Who am I to Teresa? If Teresa's daughter is my daughter's mother, who am I to Teresa? But if we say it backwards, my daughter's mother is Teresa's daughter, who am I to Teresa? Now, if a man is narrating, if a man is talking, if a man is speaking, then visualize it. Teresa's daughter is my daughter's mother, or my daughter's mother, who's my daughter's mother? My wife is Teresa's daughter. Who am I to Teresa? I am the son-in-law. You know what I'm saying? It's very simple to understand if we know how to do some critical thinking and break down complex sentences. And you know, a lot of the Bible is written this way. There's a lot of complex sentences in the Bible. And a lot of people don't know how to break it down because they don't want to take the time to critically think. The human brain, the human mind, is very lazy. We don't want to think. We just want everything to be done quickly and easily. And that's it. So, let's make a list of all the descriptions the Bible gives us about the second beast in Revelation 13. So now that we know who the first beast is of Revelation 13, the Bible tells us that right around the time the papacy was on its way down, 1798, there was another beast John saw that was on its way up. Revelation 13 and verse 11 says, And I beheld another beast coming up out of the earth, and he had two horns like a lamb, and spake as a dragon. First, it's a beast, meaning it's a superpower. Number two, now remember, this lamb-like beast rises up as soon as the papacy was on its way to captivity, which is around the 1700s, late 1700s. So this superpower will rise up around that time, late 1700s. Number three, notice that prophecy goes from east to west. Remember, in Daniel 2 and Daniel 7, we have Babylon to Medo-Persia, to Greece, to Rome. It goes from east to west. And then pagan Rome gave the seat and power and authority to the papacy. So then, where is this lamb-like beast going to be? Is it going to be in the east, or will it be further in the west? If we follow the movement of prophecy, it's going to be in the western hemisphere, in the new world not the old world. Point number four. This beast comes up out of the earth, which is the opposite of the sea. Now, if the sea means a densely populated area, then the earth with no sea, no water, means not so densely populated area. Number five, it will be a lamb-like beast. Now, who is the lamb in the Bible? The lamb would be Christ. So this beast, this superpower, is going to be a Christ-like superpower, a Christian nation. And now remember, it has two horns, like the lamb, two horns. What is a horn a symbol of in the Bible? Kingdom, or power, or principle. It had two principles, 
Now these horns are very different from the rest of the horns in Bible prophecy. These horns from the lamb had no crown. So this beast will be a lamb-like beast, a Christian nation with two principles, two main principles. And if it is a lamb-like beast, a Christian nation, what are the two principles of Christ? In Matthew 22, verses 36 through 40, when Jesus was being asked, which is the greatest commandment? Here's what he had to say. Thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thy heart, and with all thy soul, and with all thy mind. This is the first and great commandment. And the second is like unto it, Thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself. On these two commandments hang all the law and the prophets. So then the two principles of Christ is to love God and to love our neighbors, right? These two commandments are the foundation of the entire Bible and of the entire law of God. These two commandments. And this is exactly why God wrote the Ten Commandments on two tables of stone, specifically. Not one, not three, two tables of stone. There is a specific reason. The first table contains the first four commandments, which describes our duty towards God governed strictly by a religious power. Governed strictly by a religious power. This is a spiritual kingdom. The second table, which contains the last six commandments, is our duty towards our neighbors, towards man. And this is governed strictly by the civil power. This is the civil kingdom. So there's the religious kingdom, the spiritual kingdom, and then the civil kingdom. These are the two principles of Christ. And these two principles were even laid out by Jesus Christ himself. In Mark 12 and verses 14 through 17, a group of people came to talk with Jesus Christ. They asked this question, Is it lawful to give tribute to Caesar or not? Shall we give or shall we not give? But he, knowing their hypocrisy, said unto them, Why tempt ye me? Bring me a penny, that I may see it. And they brought it. And he saith unto them, Whose is this image and superscription? And they said unto him, Caesar's. And Jesus answering said unto them, Render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, and to God the things that are God's. And they marveled at him. So in the context, Jesus Christ was trying to say that God controls the religious power or the spiritual kingdom. And Caesar, we call him today, the government controls the civil power or the civil kingdom. These are the two principles of Christ, church and state and the separation thereof. This lamb-like beast is a Christian nation acknowledging church and state and the separation thereof. Now let's do a recap. There are five points, five characteristics. Number one, this beast will be a beast or a superpower. Number two, it'll come up around late 1700s. Number three, it'll come up in the Western Hemisphere in the New World and not the Old World. Number four, it comes up in a sparsely populated area or an area that's not so densely populated. 
Number five, it is a Christian nation that acknowledges the two principles of Christ, church principles and state principles and the separation thereof. So what is the only Christian-based superpower that rises up in the late 1700s in a not so densely populated area in the Western Hemisphere who acknowledges church and states and the separation thereof? None other than the United States of America. Number one, is America a beast or a superpower? It is actually one of the most influential superpowers today. Point number two, did it come up in the late 1700s? 1776 is the Declaration of Independence. 1783 was the end of the Revolutionary War against Great Britain. 1787, the U.S. Constitution was framed. 1789, the U.S. Constitution was ratified. 1789 to 1797, George Washington served as our first president. So while the papacy was on its way down in the 1700s, late 1700s, the U.S. was quietly establishing its power and dominance. Number three, did the U.S. come up in the Western Hemisphere? Well, it's no secret that the United States came up in the New World in the Western Hemisphere. Even our currency states that we are established in the New World. It even calls it the New World Order. Number four, did the U.S. come up in a not so densely populated area? Well, when the U.S. was discovered, this was not a densely populated area. There was tribes here and there, but it wasn't so compact together like it was back then in the old world, in Rome. And number five, does the U.S. acknowledge church and states and the separation thereof? Well, we actually have a constitution protecting the separation of church and state. One of the reasons why our founding fathers came to claim this land was because they were trying to detach themselves from a king that runs both church and state, which is the Pope. This is the reason why we came up as a republic and a Protestant nation. Republicanism is a kingdom without a king. Protestantism is a church without a Pope. So the United States of America is the only entity in the world or the only superpower in the world that fit the description of the second beast, the land beast of Revelation 13. Mic check. Mic check, mic check. Okay. I found this, uh, I found this video talking about the image of the beast. This video right here, we're gonna, we're gonna check it out. We're gonna check it out real quick. And let's just see what some people say about the image of the beast. All right. So I searched online to see what the world out there thought about this image of the beast. And I came across this video that made a case for it. What or who is the image of the beast? While watching this video, I began to mentally pick apart some of the things that it was saying about the subject. So pretty much the main thing that he's talking about here is kind of a long drawn out thing is that one of the popes gave birth, not gave birth, but fathered someone named Cesare Borgia. Again, one of the popes is what he's trying to say. The point that he's trying to make is that one of the popes fathered 
some guy named Cesare Borgia. One of the popes from the Roman Catholic Church fathered some guy named Cesare Borgia. That's the main, that's the main thing here. There were some things I agreed with and a lot of things I strongly disagreed with. I got a little bit annoyed at the fact that some who try to teach Bible prophecy, the image of the beast in particular, ignore a lot of the groundwork the Bible gives us when it comes to this subject or to any particular Bible subject for that matter. Wow, this, this made me really mad. <laughs> this made me really mad because, you know, some... A lot of people don't, it's so simple, just reading, just read the Bible, it's so simple. Just read the Bible, this is not the image of the beast. I know what this guy's trying to say, that this guy, this is the image of the beast. That's what, I bet you that's what he's trying to say. And I was right. That is what the video was trying to say. That all these paintings of white Jesus was the image of the beast. Okay. No question, this is not Jesus Christ. No question. This is just some... I don't know whose picture that is, but that's not Jesus Christ. Jesus would not look like that, right? But this is not the image of the beast. I don't know what... People just need to... People just need to read the Bible. Just read the Bible. Just read the Bible. The Bible will tell you what the image of the beast is. In fact, let's, let's go there. Let's go there. Hold on a minute. Let's just go there real quick. Okay. We just came across this, uh, just came across this video. Um, I was looking, searching for a video that talks about the image of the beast. Okay. And we came across this video talking about the image of the beast is a painting of a fake Jesus, right? Just a simple reading of the Bible, you'll know what the image of the beast is. Okay? Well, first of all, who is the sea beast in Revelation 13? The sea beast in Revelation 13 is the papacy. We know this, right? Well, before we get, before we dig deeper into this, number one, what is an image in the Bible? What is an image in Bible prophecy or in the Bible in general? An image in the Bible is a likeness of something. We've talked about this before. We've talked about this over and over and over again. An image in the Bible is a likeness of something. When God made Adam and Eve, God made Adam and Eve after their own image, after their own likeness. In Exodus 20, when talking about making an idol, it says, don't make yourself any graven image or any likeness of anything. So an image in the Bible is a likeness of something. Right, let's just get that straight. An image in the Bible is a likeness of something. Now, who is the sea beast in Revelation 13? We know that the sea beast in Revelation 13 is the papacy. And we know that the sea beast, the papacy, came or rose out of the sea. And we know that the sea in Bible prophecy is a symbol for peoples, multitudes, nations, and tongues, or a densely populated area. But since we're talking about the papacy, where did the papacy rise out from? Yes, of course, the papacy did rise out of a densely populated area, but specifically that densely populated area is Rome, or what we call now Europe. And so 
The C is also a symbol for Europe. Primarily, it's a symbol for a densely populated area, but specifically, it's a symbol for Europe, or Rome, or Europe. We call it nowadays. So the C beast, papacy, the C is a symbol for a densely populated area in the primary sense, and in the specific sense, the secondary sense, the C is also a symbol for Europe or Rome. We call it now Europe. Okay, the land beast now, we, we know that the land beast is America. We know that now, right? We know that the land beast is America. The land beast came or rose out of the earth. So if the sea is a symbol for a densely populated area or Rome or Europe, then what is the earth a symbol of? The earth is a symbol of no sea. It's a symbol of a not so densely populated area which is the land of America. Because the land of America back then, when it was first discovered, when when the nation of America was rising up, the land of America, this land was not so densely populated. It wasn't so compact the way that Europe was compact. In the primary sense, the earth in which the land beast came out of is a not so densely populated area but it's also in the secondary sense is America, the land of America. So again, an image is a likeness of something. The sea beast is the papacy. The sea is a densely populated area in the primary sense. And in the secondary sense, it is Rome or Europe. The land beast is America. And the land, the earth in which America sprouted out from is the land of America. Simple enough, right? Simple enough. Very, very simple if we just read the Bible. If we just read the Bible, very simple to understand. Very simple to understand. Okay, now, it says in Revelation 13 that the land beast will deceive them that dwell on the earth by the means of miracles which he had power to do in the sight of the beast, saying to them that dwell on the earth that they should make an image to the beast which had the wound by a sword and did live. Who is the beast? The first beast? The one with the deadly wound? That would be the papacy. So the land beast, the second beast now is telling the earth is saying to them that dwell on the earth, them that dwell on the earth. What is the earth a symbol of? The place where it's not so densely populated, which was the land of America. So the United States of America is going to tell those who dwell on the land of America, the earth, to make an image to the first beast, the papacy. And what is the papacy? The papacy is a union of church and state. The papacy is a combination of multiple religions, universal religion, and it's also a union of church and state. And so now, America is going to tell his citizens to make an image. What is an image? A likeness of the beast, which is the papacy. So again, layman's term, America is going to tell its citizens to make a likeness of the papacy, which is a union of church and states, and not just any old church and state, a universal religion type of church and state. A church that has a universal religion. 
any old religion that you can find. Pagan religions, Babylonian religion, Egyptian religion, Medo-Persian religion, Greek religion, Roman religion, Norse religion, you name it. All those are pagan religions that worship the sun. They're pagans. They worship the sun on the day of the sun. And America is going to unite that type of church with the state, a union of church and state. That is the image of the beast. It is not some painting from the 1700s or the 1500s. That is not an image of the beast. The image of the beast is the union of church and state. That is the image of the beast. In verse 15 it says, And he had power to give life unto the image of the beast, that the image of the beast should both speak and cause that as many as would not worship or obey the image of the beast should be killed. So this union of church and state is going to speak what does a political power talk about when it speaks? It talks laws and legislations. So this image of the beast, this union of church and state, is going to make laws and legislations that will cause or enforce that as many as would not obey these laws and legislations, that they should be killed. And that he causeth all, both small and great, rich and poor, free and bond, to receive a mark on their right hand or their foreheads, and that no man might buy or sell, save he that had the mark or the name of the beast or the number of his name. Now, if you guys are realizing this so far, those who have the mark of the beast are going to be the ones who will worship the beast or obey the beast's commandments. They will also have the name of the beast and the number of his name. And what number is that? That number is 603 score and 6 or 666. It's so plain and simple to understand when you just read the Bible. No need for fancy opinions, no need for fancy interpretations. Just read the Bible. The Bible will tell you exactly how to interpret these symbols. The Bible will tell you exactly what the image of the beast is. The Bible will tell you exactly the clues to find out what the mark of the beast is. You gotta know who the beast is first. We already know who that is. Now it's time for us to know what is his mark? Since we know who the beast is now, it's the papacy, now it's time for us to really dig deep and figure out what is the papacy's mark of authority. Mic check. One, two. Mic check. Okay, so we've talked about the symbols that God uses to communicate to us prophetic visions. We know how to interpret prophecy now using the symbols God gave us and His interpretation of those symbols. We are now at the era of the second beast of Revelation 13, which is America. 
Revelation 13, starting from verse 11. And I beheld another beast coming up out of the earth, and he had two horns like a lamb, and he spake as a dragon. And he exerciseth all the power of the first beast before him, and causeth the earth and them which dwell therein to worship the first beast whose deadly wound was healed. And he doeth great wonders, so that he maketh fire come down from heaven on the earth in the sight of men and deceiveth them that dwell on the earth by the means of those miracles which he had power to do in the sight of the beast, saying to them that dwell on the earth that they should make an image to the beast which had the wound by a sword and did live. So remember, an image in the Bible means a likeness or a replica of something. The Bible says that the United States will make a likeness of the beast which is the papacy. And what was the papacy again? It was a persecuting power that united church and states who persecuted Christians who did not worship them by obeying their commands. This means then that the United States of America will also unite church and state and will persecute those who will not worship them by obeying the commands of this soon-to-be mirror image or likeness of the papacy. And this is something that's already been happening slowly in recent time. And he causeth all, both small and great, rich and poor, free and bond, to receive a mark in their right hand or in their foreheads, and that no man might buy or sell, save he that had the mark or the name of the beast or the number of his name. The Greek word that John used for the word mark is the word karagma, which means a stamp, an imprinted mark, or a brand. It also means a badge of servitude. So in the Bible, a mark is an imprint or a stamp or a badge that indicates ownership. Revelation 14 verses 9 and 10 says, And the third angel followed them, saying with a loud voice, If any man worship the beast and his image and receive his mark in his forehead or in his right hand, the same shall drink of the wine of the wrath of God. Revelation 14 and verse 11 And the smoke of their torments ascendeth up forever and ever, and they have no rest day nor night, who worship the beast and his image, and whosoever receiveth the mark of his name. Revelation 20 and verse 4 And I saw thrones, and they sat upon them, and judgment was given unto them. And I saw the souls of them that were beheaded for the witness of Jesus, and for the word of God, and which had not worshipped the beast, neither his image, neither had received his mark upon their foreheads or in their right hands, and they lived and reigned with Christ a thousand years." So by reading these verses, we might have noticed something particular about the mark of the beast, and that is it is closely connected to the worship or obedience to the beast and his image. It is also connected to buying and selling, but we'll get into that later on. Now remember, to worship means to bow down and prostrate oneself in submission and obedience to the commands of someone religiously. So whoever has the mark of the beast on their forehead or right hand directly means they are worshiping the beast by bowing down to the beast and submitting to the commandments of the beast or in modern terms, submitting to the laws of the beast. So it makes sense now why it is the mark of the beast. This mark indicates ownership so that one can tell who belongs to the beast by the mark. So if you have the mark of the beast 
or the signature of the beast, it means you belong to the beast, you worship him and obey his commands or laws, and you acknowledge that he owns you through your obedience and that you give your allegiance to him. But what exactly is the mark? Is it a tattoo or a computer chip? Or is it a barcode on your forehead or right hand? Now we know that the book of Revelation is written thematically and symbolically. For example, in Revelation 13, it talks about a seven-headed beast with the name of blasphemy on his heads. Now we know who that beast is now, right? We now know we aren't looking for a literal seven-headed beast with the name blasphemy on his forehead. In Revelation 17, it talks about a harlot with the name of Babylon on her forehead. We are not looking for an actual or a literal prostitute with the name Babylon on her forehead. It is symbolic. Revelation 13 says there will be a group of people with the mark of the beast in their forehead or in their right hand. This is a spiritual mark. We are not looking for people with an actual mark or tattoo on their forehead or right hand. Now before we reveal what the actual signature or mark of the papacy is, let's ask another question. If the papacy has a mark that tell us who belongs to the papacy or who belong to the papacy, does God also have a signature that he gives which indicates who belongs to him? Revelation 7 and verses 2 and 3 And I saw another angel ascending from the east, having the seal of the living God, and he cried with a loud voice to the four angels to whom it was given to hurt the earth and the sea, saying, Hurt not the earth, neither the sea, nor the trees, till we have sealed the servants of our God in their foreheads. So the seal of God is what indicates who are the servants of God. Question, what is the seal of God? In order for us to answer this question, we're going to have to go through a maze. Because to answer this question, there's a lot of interlocking branches in the Bible. And right now we are going to go into something that might seem like it's out of place, but trust me, just follow along and you will see why we went this route. In the beginning, God made the whole world and everything was perfect everyone was in harmony before sin. Then God set a rule for man in Genesis 2 and verse 17. He said not to eat this certain fruit because on that very day that man does eat the fruit, man will surely die. Adam and Eve broke that rule, which means they sinned. Paul says in Hebrews 9 and verse 22 that without the shedding of blood, there is no remission or deliverance from sin. He also says in Romans 6 and verse 23 that the wages of sin is death. Did Adam and Eve die the day that they sinned? Although some might say that they spiritually died that day, which I agree, in a physical sense, they did not die. Were their blood shed that day? No. But God said that man would die the same day as the result of sin. Why were they still alive? Someone had to die. Someone's blood had to be shed. Otherwise, it isn't lawful for them to be walking around alive after they have just sinned. Well, in Genesis 3, 
God does something interesting. It says there in verse 21 that God made coats of skin and clothed Adam and Eve. How did God make the coats of skin? An animal must have died that day in order for the skin to be provided. Let's think about this. Who sinned? Adam and Eve or the animal? The animal did not sin that day. It was Adam and Eve who sinned that day. The animal was innocent. Adam and Eve deserved the death penalty, but instead the innocent animal died that day and took that death penalty for them. So the shedding of an innocent creature was the reason why Adam and Eve were still alive that day. Someone took their place in death. This was the day God had established the sacrificial system on earth after sin as the remission or deliverance from sin. This is called a foreshadowing. Now there was no way that the death and the shedding of some animal's blood would take away sin. In fact, even Paul mentions that in Hebrews, that it isn't the blood of bulls and goats that take away the sin. Those sacrifices were a foreshadowing that pointed to the ultimate sacrifice of Jesus Christ. Before sin, there was no need for a sacrifice. Everything was perfect. After sin, God had established the sacrificial system on earth. Remember that. Before sin, there was no need to foreshadow an ultimate sacrifice because a sacrifice is only needed if there was sin to take away. After sin was introduced, the foreshadowing of the ultimate sacrifice was then needed because it symbolized the promise that an ultimate sacrifice will one day come as the means by which God would take away sin. So Adam and Eve had to make sacrifices. Cain and Abel had to make sacrifices, although Cain's sacrifice was no good because he sacrificed plants and did not shed blood. Abraham had to make sacrifices. The Israelites had to make sacrifices. But with the Israelites, this was when God had made a whole systematic sacrificial laws and ceremonies which centered around sacrifices as symbols and shadows foreshadowing the real ministry of the ultimate sacrifice himself, Jesus Christ. His innocence, his death, burial, resurrection, and work in the heavenly sanctuary. Here's what I mean. In the Old Testament, God saw the daughter of Zion, that is Israel, as a comely and delicate woman. He even says that he was like a husband unto them. In Exodus, God married Israel, gave them a set of Ten Commandments. Then he says, if you do all these things, I will bless you. Then Israel says, all that you have said, we will do. This was the marriage vow. But then Israel ended up breaking their marriage vows, the Ten Commandments, which is sin. 1 John 3 and verse 4 even tell us that sin is the transgression or the breaking of the law, which is the Ten Commandments. 
And so what ended up happening was, in order for Israel to reconcile with God after breaking the Ten Commandments, God had to establish a sacrificial system because if He didn't, they would all die because remember, blood has to be shed for the remission of sin. In Leviticus 23, God puts in detail the sacrificial system and makes a list of feast days that center around a sacrifice which Israel must keep. And evidently, those feast days were also called Sabbaths or Sabbath days. They were different from the weekly seventh-day Sabbath. Let's keep this in mind. The seventh-day Sabbath was established on earth before sin. The feast day Sabbaths were established after sin. This is important. We will bring this up again later. Leviticus 23 starts off with God speaking to Moses about a message he wants to give Israel. He tells Moses, Speak unto the children of Israel and say unto them concerning the feasts of the Lord, which ye shall proclaim to be holy convocations, even these are my feasts. And then God first makes a distinction between the seventh day Sabbath and the feast day Sabbaths. He says, Six days shall work be done, but the seventh day is the Sabbath of rest and holy convocation. Ye shall do no work therein. It is the Sabbath of the Lord in all your dwellings. And then starting from verse 4, God began to announce the feast day Sabbaths. He says, These are the feasts of the Lord, even holy convocations or rehearsals, which ye shall proclaim in their seasons. And then he goes on to list the feast day Sabbaths. Here is the list, which were again established after sin. You can read all this in Leviticus 23. Number one, the Passover, which is a shadow of Jesus' death and crucifixion. Number two, the Feast of Unleavened Bread, which is a shadow of Jesus' sinless life. Number three, the Feast of First Fruits, which is a shadow of the resurrection of Jesus. Number four, the Feast of Weeks or Pentecost, which is a shadow of the descent of the Holy Spirit or the birth of the church. Number five, Feast of Trumpets which is the shadow of the warnings or the loud cry or the Second Advent movement. Number six, the Day of Atonement, which is a shadow of the cleansing of the sanctuary or the judgment. And number seven, the Feast of Tabernacles, which is the shadow that points to the Second Advent of Christ when He comes to gather His people to take them to the New Jerusalem to tabernacle with them. So these feast day Sabbaths were all foreshadowing the ministry of Christ. These feasts were also mentioned in Exodus 12, and God calls them ordinances or statutes or appointed custom. In Exodus 12, God tells Israel about the Passover and how they should burn the lamb or goat as a sacrifice and also to eat. And then God says in verse 11, And thus shall ye eat it with your loins girded, your shoes on your feet, and your staff in your hand, and ye shall eat it in haste. It is the Lord's Passover. And then God says this in verse 14, And this day shall be unto you for a memorial, and ye shall keep it a feast to the Lord throughout your generations. 
ye shall keep it a feast by an ordinance forever. And then God goes on to talk about the feast of unleavened bread and says in verse 17, And ye shall observe the feast of unleavened bread, for in this selfsame day have I brought your armies out of the land of Egypt. Therefore shall ye observe this day in your generations by an ordinance forever. So those feast day Sabbaths are also called ordinances. Now remember, the Ten Commandments were written by the hand of God on the two tables of stone and were placed inside of the Ark of the Covenant. But the rest of the law, which are the sacrificial laws and ceremonial laws, these ordinances were written by the hand of Moses and check out where it is placed. Deuteronomy 31 verses 24 through 26. And it came to pass, when Moses had made an end of writing the words of this law in a book until they were finished, that Moses commanded the Levites, which bear the Ark of the Covenants of the Lord, saying, Take this book of the law and put it in the side of the Ark of the Covenants of the Lord your God, that it may be there for a witness against thee. So the Ten Commandments were written by God, placed inside of the Ark, the book of the law, which were the ordinances, were handwritten by Moses and placed outside on the side of the ark as a witness against Israel. Let's just keep this in mind. Some of us are probably wondering why we went here. You will know why in just a few minutes. Again, just remember, the feast day Sabbaths were ordinances that foreshadow the sacrifice and ministry of Christ which were handwritten by Moses in the book of the law placed outside of the ark on the side of the ark as a witness against Israel. Before sin, these feast day Sabbaths, which foreshadowed the sacrifice of Christ, was not needed because there was no sinner that Christ had to die for. After sin, these feast day Sabbaths were needed because now there are sinners that Christ had to make a sacrifice for. Very important to keep this in mind. So what is the seal of God? In Ephesians 4 and verse 30, Paul says, Grieve not the Holy Spirit of God, whereby ye are sealed unto the day of redemption. So do not grieve the Holy Spirit, because He is the one that will seal you unto the day of redemption. So the word that Paul used for the word grieve is the Greek word lupeo. It means to make one sorrowful. So what Paul is saying is, grieve not the Holy Spirit. Don't make him sorrowful. How do we make the Holy Spirit sorrowful? There must be a some kind of interaction between us and the Holy Spirit if we are able to cause the Holy Spirit to grieve or be sorrowful. Jesus says in John 15 and verse 26, When the Comforter is come, even the Spirit of truth, he shall testify of me. So this is the interaction that's going to take place between us and the Holy Spirit. When the Holy Spirit has come, He will testify of Jesus. How? How will He testify of Jesus Christ? I mean, what exactly is it going to say? Usually when someone testifies of something or someone, they use a testimony. Now, we know that Jesus is also God. 
If you are in doubt, notice John chapter 1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And everything was made by Him, and without Him, nothing that is made could have been made. So Jesus Christ is the Creator. He is the Word. In Hebrews 1 and verse 8, talking about God the Father, But unto the Son He saith, Thy throne, O God, is forever and ever. So God, talking to His Son, calls His own Son God. So Jesus is also God. And so we need to figure out now, what is His testimony? The testimony of God. Because His testimony is what the Holy Spirit is going to use to testify of Him. We are going to notice three testimonies of Jesus Christ. Now check this out. Remember in Exodus 25 and verses 8 and 9, God told Moses about Israel and let them make me a sanctuary that I may dwell among them according to all that I show thee after the pattern of the tabernacle and the pattern of all the instruments thereof, even so shall ye make it. The tabernacle or the temple that Moses built here on earth was just a copy of the real tabernacle and temple that God showed him. You'll notice in Hebrews 9, Paul talks about the same tabernacle and temple that Moses built here on earth. Remember, only the high priest can enter into the most holy place. And Jesus is now our high priest. And Paul says in Hebrews 9 and verse 24, For Christ is not entered into the holy places made with hands, which are the figures of the true, but into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God for us. So the tabernacle that Moses built from the courtyard to the sanctuary to the ark of the testimony was a copy of the true, which is in heaven. If you don't believe me, check out what John saw in heaven. Revelation 11 and verse 19. And the temple of God was opened in heaven, and there was seen in his temple the ark of his testament. Now let's zero in on the ark. The ark that Moses built that was in the temple here on earth was a copy of the ark in the temple of God in heaven. And what was in the ark? Exodus 25 and verse 16, God talking to Moses, And thou shalt put into the ark the testimony which I shall give thee. What is this testimony? Exodus 31 and verse 18, And he gave unto Moses, when he had made an end of communing with him upon Mount Sinai, two tables of testimony, tables of stone, written with the finger of God. So this testimony is the Ten Commandments. This is God's testimony. God told Moses to put his testimony, the Ten Commandments, in the Ark of the Testimony. We know that it is his testimony because up in heaven, he calls it the Ark of his testament in the book of Revelation. The Ten Commandments is God's testimony and it is Christ's testimony as well because he is God. Now remember what Jesus said in John 15 and verse 26, when the Comforter is come, even the Spirit of truth, he shall testify of me. And what is the testimony? What testimony is he going to use to testify of Christ? The testimony of Christ, which is the Ten Commandments. 
And it's no wonder why later on in John 16, Jesus says that when the Comforter or the Holy Spirit is come, He will reprove or convict the world of sin and of righteousness and of judgment. What is sin? 1 John 3 and verse 4, sin is the transgression or the breaking of the law, the Ten Commandments. So when the Holy Spirit has come, He will convict you of sin, sin being the transgression or the breaking of the law, the Ten Commandments, and how is He going to convict you of sin? He will testify of Christ using the testimony of Christ, which is the Ten Commandments. Because how on earth can you be convicted of sin if no one testifies the law to you? That's how it works. The Ten Commandments is one of the testimonies of Jesus Christ. Now check this out. Let's go even further. Remember, when the Jews were trying to accuse Jesus of breaking the Sabbath, He says thus to them, Search the Scriptures, for in them ye think ye have eternal life, and they are they which testify of Me. The Scriptures testify of Christ. Now back when Jesus said this, they only had the Old Testament because the New Testament was not yet written. So what Jesus was saying is that the entire Old Testament testifies of Him. What was mainly in the Old Testament? The narrative of the entire Old Testament consists of the law and the prophecies of Jesus. The killing of the bulls and lambs, the prophecy that Jesus had to come to be the sacrifice, the substance to the shadow. Everything in the Old Testament was about Jesus and Him being the sacrifice. Adam and Eve sinned. They made aprons for themselves and then God came and said, Get those aprons out of here. I will make you coats of skin. How did God make coats of skin? There had to have been an animal sacrifice. Cain and Abel, there was a sacrifice. The story of Abraham and his son, God provided a ram that was caught in the bush as a sacrifice. Elijah sacrificed a bullock and then fire came down to devour the sacrifice. Samson sacrificed himself to save Israel. The entire sanctuary service was about the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. And remember, the sacrificial laws and ceremonies were all foreshadowing what Christ would do, which has become the ultimate sacrifice for us because we sinned. The Old Testament testifies of Jesus as the sacrifice. And it is because we are a sinful world that He sacrificed Himself for us. When we fully understand this, it leads us to repentance, which means to change our mind or to reverse our thinking or to turn away from our sins. It means to stop doing it. This is another testimony of Jesus Christ. The fact that we are sinners, but Jesus was the ultimate sacrifice that died for us so we should repent of our sins. The entire Bible testifies of this. Now let's go even further than this now. Revelation 19. John the Revelator had an encounter with an angel and he says, I fell at his feet to worship him. And he said unto me, See thou do it not. I am thy fellow servant, and of thy brethren that have the testimony of Jesus, worship God, for the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. Another testimony of Jesus Christ. 
the spirit of prophecy. Prophecy testifies of Jesus Christ. How? Prophecy reveals to us that Jesus will return again to take us home. So what are the three testimonies of Jesus that we have just learned about? Well, let's say it like this. Testimony number one. We are lawbreakers, sinners, punishable by death. But the good news is that Jesus died for us. That is justification. Testimony number two. Because Jesus died for us, it should lead us to repentance, which means to turn away from our sins, obey God, and stop breaking the Ten Commandments. Remember, Jesus said in John 17 and verse 17, Sanctify them through thy truth, thy word is truth. And Psalms 119 and verse 142 says, Thy law is truth. So when we faithfully keep the Ten Commandments, that is sanctification. Testimony number three, the prophecy that Jesus will come again to take us home. That is glorification. That is the whole plan of salvation. So when the Holy Spirit comes to you, He will convict you of sin, that you are breaking the law or the Ten Commandments, and that you deserve to die, but Jesus died for you. So repent and turn away from your sins. Obey God and keep the Ten Commandments and faithfully await the second coming of Jesus Christ and He will take us home. That is the Gospel. So when the Holy Spirit has come to you, He will preach to you the Gospel. The central theme being that the Holy Spirit will lead you to the obedience of God's law, which is the Ten Commandments. All ten. And if we don't accept this testimony, if we don't turn away from our sin and obey God's Ten Commandments, we have just rejected the Holy Spirit. And if we do that, we have just made the Holy Spirit sorrowful. We have just grieved the Holy Spirit when we don't repent. Why? James 2 and verse 26. For the body without the Spirit is dead. Why do people grieve? People grieve when their loved ones die. If we reject the Holy Spirit's counsel to repent and obey the law of God, then we are as good as dead, and that's why He would be grieving. Because by rejecting Him, we are rejecting the one who can give us life. So this is the job of the Holy Spirit. It is to lead us to obedience, the obedience of God's law, the Ten Commandments. Again, Paul says, Grieve not the Holy Spirit of God, whereby ye are sealed unto the day of redemption. If we are sealed by the Holy Spirit, and the Holy Spirit's job is to lead us to the obedience of the Ten Commandments, then are the Ten Commandments the actual seal? Revelation 7 and verses 2 and 3, And I saw another angel ascending from the east, having the seal of the living God, and he cried with a loud voice to the four angels to whom it was given to hurt the earth and the sea, saying, Hurt not the earth, neither the sea, nor the trees, till we have sealed the servants of our God in their foreheads. The Greek word that John uses for the word seal is the word sphragis, which means a signet, a signature, an impressed stamp, or a mark of genuineness. In Hebrew, it is the word katam. It means to seal up, to close, or to secure. So God will secure His people, His servants, using His signature or seal. 
Now, back in the olden times, when a king writes up a scroll, he rolls it up and secures it with his signet or seal, which is his ring. A king's seal contains three things his name, his title, and his territory. For example, let's say you find a very important scroll that contains some important written documents from Cyrus, king of Persia. You would know who that scroll belongs to by noticing the seal. It would say Cyrus, king of Persia. If you only saw the name Cyrus on the seal, then it would just be some random scroll. It could be any Cyrus. But if the seal said Cyrus, king of Persia, you would realize that this isn't just some random scroll. It would narrow the owner down to just one person and one person only. Make no mistakes about it, this scroll belongs to the king. So God's seal must have his name, his title, and his territory. Where in the Bible can we find this? A little hint, the seal is God's signature, and so he writes it with his own finger. Exodus 20, starting from verse 8. Remember the Sabbath day, to keep it holy. Six days shalt thou labor and do all thy work, but the seventh day is the Sabbath of the Lord thy God. In it thou shalt not do any work, thou nor thy son, nor thy daughter, thy manservant, nor thy maidservant, nor thy cattle, nor thy stranger that is within thy gates. Why? For in six days the Lord, that's his name, made, that's his title as the creator, heaven and earth, the sea and all that in them is, that is his territory, and rested the seventh day, wherefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and hallowed it. So by keeping the Sabbath, we acknowledge that everything belongs to God. The heaven, the earth, the sea, and all that in them is, belongs to God. And we acknowledge this fact by keeping the Sabbath. And by keeping the Sabbath, we are saying, make no mistakes about it. God owns the universe. And if you do that, you are acknowledging that you belong to God. Now, some will refute and mention Colossians 2 and verse 16. We will get to that in a little bit. Now, check out what God says in Ezekiel 20 and verses 12 and 20. Moreover, also, I gave them my Sabbaths to be a sign between me and them that they might know that I am the Lord that sanctify them. And hallow my Sabbaths, and they shall be a sign between me and you that ye may know that I am the Lord your God." Again, by keeping the Sabbath, we are acknowledging that God is the Lord, our God. It is His signature, His seal that will be on our foreheads. But it will not be literally on our foreheads. It is a spiritual mark. And no, it isn't just for literal Israel or for literal Jews, because in Romans 2, Paul explains, you are not a Jew outwardly in your appearance, but you are a Jew inwardly, and true circumcision is not physical in the flesh, but spiritual in the heart. He also says that when you get baptized and keep the Ten Commandments, you become Israel spiritually. Jesus also mentions that those who do the works of Abraham are Abraham's seed, whether you are from the nation of Israel or a Gentile. Plus, there is nowhere in the Bible that states the Sabbath is only for the Jews. 
You cannot find that text anywhere, but you can find where Jesus says that the Sabbath was made for man, not just the Jew. So the seal of God is the Sabbath, but it isn't just the Sabbath because that commandment is connected to the rest of the commandments. James says in chapter 2 and verse 10, For whosoever shall keep the whole law and yet offend in one point, he is guilty of all. So the seal of God is the Sabbath along with the rest of the commandments. But the Sabbath is an important commandment to keep if you truly want to show that you belong to God. Anybody can abstain from murder, but that doesn't mean he belongs to God. Anybody can honor his parents, but that doesn't mean he belongs to God. A Buddhist can abstain from lying, but that doesn't mean his allegiance is with God. A Muslim can abstain from covetousness, but that doesn't mean his allegiance is with the God of the Bible. An atheist can abstain from adultery, but that doesn't mean his allegiance is with God. Anybody can keep nine of the Ten Commandments. You can only have one God. You can abstain from bowing to idols. You can abstain from using His name in vain. But the Fourth Commandment shows which God you serve because again, by acknowledging the Sabbath, you acknowledge the God of the Bible to be the God who created the world in six days and rested on the Sabbath. Did you guys know that there would not be atheism today if we all remembered to keep the Sabbath? Because by keeping the Sabbath, we would all acknowledge that God is our Creator. So keeping all Ten Commandments, including and especially the Sabbath commandment, is the seal of our God. And we don't keep it in order for God to love us or in order for God to save us. We keep it to show appreciation and deep connection to God because He loves us and because He saved us. Isaiah 8 and verse 16, bind up the testimony, seal the law among my disciples. And this is why in the end, we will be sealed by the Holy Spirit by convicting us of sin, that we break the law, the Ten Commandments, but will testify that Jesus died for us and will advise us to repent and stop sinning and lead us to the obedience of God's Ten Commandments, sealing us unto the day of redemption when Jesus comes again to take us home. And this is why the angel said in Revelation 14 and verse 12, right when Jesus returns, here is the patience of the saints. Here are they that keep the commandments of God and the faith of Jesus. Now let's dig even deeper now. Remember, the seal will not literally be on our foreheads. It is a spiritual signature and it will not be for literal Israel, but for spiritual Israel. Of course, some literal Israelites are also spiritual Israelites. So God's mark or signature is His seal and it is given to the forehead only to those who belong to Him. Revelation 7 verse 4 and I heard the number of them which were sealed, and there were sealed an hundred and forty and four thousand of all the tribes of the children of Israel. Again, this is spiritual Israel, and the 144,000 will be the ones that are sealed in their foreheads in the end. And of course, the seal is the Ten Commandments, but specifically the Sabbath. 
Now check this out. Revelation 14 and verse 1. And I looked and lo, a lamb stood on the Mount Sion, and with him an hundred and forty and four thousand, having his father's name written in their foreheads. That's interesting. Revelation 7 says that the end time people will have the seal or signature of God in their foreheads, but Revelation 14 says that the end time people will have the name of God written on their foreheads. Interesting. Who can perfectly write the name of God but God alone? And where do we find God writing His name? In the Sabbath commandment. His actual signature. Now, a name in the Bible is actually symbolic for someone's character. The name Jacob, for example, means usurper. That was the character of Jacob. He usurped the birthrights of his brother, Esau. Then his name was changed to Israel because his character was changed. He prevailed with God. The name Abraham means father of many. And this was Abraham's actual title and character. He was and still is the father of many nations. The name David means beloved, which was the character of David. He was beloved. The name Esau means hairy, which was true. Esau was hairy. So a name in the Bible can also mean title or character. Now check out what the Bible says about God's name and character in comparison to God's law. Luke 1 and verse 49, For he that is mighty hath done to me great things, and holy is his name. Isaiah 57 and verse 15, For thus saith the High and Lofty One that inhabiteth eternity, whose name is Holy. Romans 7 and verse 12, Wherefore the law is holy and the commandment holy and just and good. So God's name and character is holy and the law is holy. Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. In Psalms 119 verses 142 and 151 says that God's law is truth and that all of His commandments are the truth. So Jesus' character is the truth and His law is the truth. Ezra 9 in verse 15 says that God is righteous in character. And Psalms 119 in verse 172 says that the law is righteous. Matthew 5 in verse 48 says that God is perfect. Psalms 19 and verse 7 says that the law of God is perfect, converting the soul. So what can we say about the character of God in the law? The Ten Commandments or the law is the transcripts of God's name or character. Makes sense that His name will be written on the foreheads of God's servants because God's character will be written on the minds of those who serve and obey Him when they reflect His character, the obedience of His Ten Commandments. It's interesting, the very rules that parents teach their kids are the very rules that the parents keep themselves. It is their character. So we will have God's name because we will reflect His character, the Ten Commandments. And yes, this includes the Sabbath commandment especially. Now what about Colossians 2 verses 16 and 17? Let's read. Let no man therefore judge you in meat, or in drink, or in respect of an holy day, or of the new moon, or of the Sabbath days, which are a shadow of things to come, but the body is of Christ. So what is Paul talking about here? We've talked about this already. 
Paul was talking about the feast day Sabbaths, which were a shadow or a foreshadowing of things to come, the body or substance being Christ. Those are the feast days that God had to establish here on earth after sin was introduced into the world, sin being the breaking of God's Ten Commandments. Those feast days were also called Sabbath days, and those feast day Sabbaths foreshadowed the sacrifice of Jesus for the remission of sin. Those days are different from the seventh day Sabbath. Those were the ordinances that Israel had to perform because they were all sinners. The seventh day Sabbath was established on earth before sin, so it could not have been a foreshadowing of Jesus' sacrifice because the sacrifice was not yet needed since nobody sinned. Those feast day Sabbaths, however, were established after sin and centered around a sacrifice and offering for sin, which were all shadows or a foreshadowing that pointed to the real sacrifice, Jesus Christ and His ministry, which is the substance to those shadows. Those sacrificial laws and ceremonies were the ordinances Israel had to perform faithfully in order for them to reconcile with God. So if we just read Colossians 2 with context, here's what it says, starting from verse 13. And you, being dead in your sins and the uncircumcision of your flesh, hath he quickened together with him, having forgiven you all trespasses, blotting out the handwriting of ordinances that was against us, which was contrary to us, and took it out of the way, nailing it to the cross. And having spoiled principalities and powers, he made a show of them openly, triumphing over them in it. Let no man therefore judge you in meat, or in drink, or in respect of an holy day, or of the new moon, or of the Sabbath days, which are a shadow of things to come, but the body is of Christ. So I hope what I'm saying is being understood. The seventh day Sabbath could not have been a foreshadowing of a sacrifice because when it was established here on earth, sin had not yet happened and there was no need for a foreshadowing of the sacrifice of Jesus. But after sin, God had established the feast day Sabbaths in which a sacrifice was in the center to foreshadow the true sacrifice, Jesus Christ, and also foreshadows His ministerial work that would reconcile us back to His Father. And since Jesus fulfilled those sacrificial laws, we don't need to keep those sacrificial laws no longer. Because the only thing we need to do now, if we do sin, which is break the Ten Commandments, including the Sabbath commandment, is to confess our sins and repent. We no longer have to sacrifice a lamb and keep the sacrificial laws and ceremonies. Those were the things that foreshadowed Christ's sacrifice and ministry. Ephesians 2 and verse 15 says that the law of commandments contained in ordinances are abolished in the flesh of Christ. The law contained in ordinances were nailed to the cross, not the Ten Commandments. The sacrificial laws were nailed to the cross. Makes sense because it was the sacrifice who was nailed to the cross. So again, if we sin, if we break the Ten Commandments, we no longer have to sacrifice a lamb. The sacrificial law have already been nailed to the cross. Christ fulfilled that law. 
all we have to do now if we do sin, which is break the Ten Commandments, is to confess our sins and repent, meaning stop sinning. Okay, so in the end, people will be divided into two groups, with the main issue being worship. Now remember, to worship means to obey someone. To worship someone means to obey Him. Right? So the two groups are those who belong to God and those who belong to the beast. Those who belong to God are the ones who worship and obey God. And those who belong to the beast are the ones who worship and obey the beast. And remember, the identifiers of those two groups are the seal of God and the mark of the beast. Those who have the mark of the beast means they are worshiping the beast. Those who have the seal of God are the ones who are the servants of God. Well, how do you become a servant of God? Now, remember, the Bible says, Know ye not that to whom ye yield yourselves servants to obey, his servants ye are to whom ye obey, whether of sin unto death or of obedience unto righteousness. So Paul says, the one who you obey is the one who you serve. So you are the servant to the one who you obey. Jesus says to Satan in Matthew 4, For it is written, Thou shalt worship the Lord thy God, and him only shalt thou serve. So Jesus says the one you worship is the one you serve. Which makes sense because when you serve God, you obey him and you also worship him because obedience is worship. Worship is obedience. So this is how you become a servant of God, by obeying Him. Well, how do you obey God? If I told you, obey me, and then you say, okay, I'll obey you, and then what? Then what happens? What, what do you do? What do you obey? Do you just sit there and, and stare at me? No. There must be a commandment for you to obey. If you want to obey me, I must give you a commandment to obey. So we become the servants of God by obeying Him and worshiping Him. And what do we obey? His commandments. This is how we become the servants of God. This is how we serve Him. We obey Him. We become the servants of God by obeying His commandments. We worship God by obeying His commandments. And those who have the seal of God are the ones who serve Him. His servants, the servants of God, are the ones who have the seal of God. And you become a servant of God by obedience, by obeying His commandments. Those who obey His commandments are the servants of God and will have the seal of God. So again, in the end times, we're going to have two groups of people, those who belong to God, identified by the seal of God, by the obedience to His commandments, and those who belong to the beast, identified by the mark of the beast. Identified by the mark of the beast. A mark and a seal are essentially the same thing. It is the sign or signature that signifies who you belong to and who you serve. Who are you obedient to? So, if the seventh day Sabbath is God's seal along with the rest of His commandments, then what is the mark of the beast? Now remember, the seal of God, the thing that identifies who serves God, is the Sabbath. Think about it. Think about it. 
The Sabbath is God's seal, which means the Sabbath identifies God as the divine authority. Think about it. How do we know that we serve God? How do we know that God that we belong to God? How do we know that God has authority over all things? How do we know? Remember, God created the world in six days. He did not have to make a seventh day, but He did. When He made the seventh day, what did He make? Nothing, really. So then what was the point of the seventh day? God set apart the seventh day in order for us to acknowledge that He is the one who created the world in six days. It says so right there in the fourth commandment. Remember the Sabbath to keep it holy. Six days you shall work and then the seventh day you shall rest. Why? For in six days, that means because in six days, God made everything. So then he made a seventh day for us to acknowledge that God made everything in six days. So the seventh day, the Sabbath is his seal as divine authority over everything. So if the Sabbath is God's seal, specifically, if the seal of God is the Sabbath, and by us acknowledging the Sabbath, we acknowledge that God has divine authority over everything, then what is the mark of the beast? What does the papacy claim is their mark of divine authority? And how will the buying and selling be enforced in connection to the mark of the beast? And what about the number 666? Again, I'm not trying to make enemies here. That's not what I'm trying to do. I'm not trying to make enemies or shame anybody. I'm only here to tell you guys the truth. I'm only here to tell people the truth. If God's seal of divine authority is the Sabbath day, then what is the counterfeit? What is the mark of the papacy's authority? Catholic Record of London, Ontario, September 1, year 1923. Out of the mouth of the papacy itself. Sunday is our mark of authority. The church is above the Bible and this transference of Sabbath observance is proof of that fact. What did they claim is their mark of authority? They claimed that the transference from Sabbath to Sunday is their mark of authority. They claim that changing God's law is their mark of authority. They say we have authority to change God's law. Sunday is their mark of authority. H.F. Thomas, Chancellor of Cardinal Gibbons, says, Of course, the Catholic Church claims that the change Saturday Sabbath to Sunday was her act, and the act is a mark of her ecclesiastical authority in religious things. Again, right out of the horse's mouth. Right out of the horse's mouth. Cardinal Gibbons, in Faith of Our Fathers, 92nd edition, page 89, freely admits... You may read the Bible from Genesis to Revelation and you will not find a single line authorizing the sanctification of Sunday. The scriptures enforce the religious observance of Saturday, which is the Sabbath, a day which we, the Catholic Church, never sanctify. And again, the Catholic Mirror, 
official publication of James Cardinal Gibbons, September 23, 1893. The Catholic Church, by virtue of her divine mission, changed the day from Saturday to Sunday. They admit this themselves, that they have authority to change God's law. Nobody has authority to change God's law except God himself, and even he doesn't change his law. Even he doesn't change his law. Our Sunday Visitor, February 5, 1950. Protestants do not realize that by observing Sunday, they accept the authority of the spokesperson of the church, the Pope. What a shocking admission. What a shocking admission. The observance of Sunday sacredness instead of the Sabbath, the papacy claims, is the mark of their divine authority. So Sunday sacredness was first introduced to Sabbath-keeping Christians by Emperor Constantine around the time he became the first ever Pope, contrary to popular but false belief that Peter was the first ever Pope. In fact, Peter was even crucified upside down by the Romans. How could he be the first ever Pope? No, Constantine was the first ever Pope. Look it up in history. The first day of the week was the day that pagans back in those times recognized to worship their sun god. So they called it the Day of the Sun or Sun Day. Now remember, to worship means to bow down in obedience to someone religiously. So observing Sunday instead of God's Sabbath, people are worshiping the Pope by obeying his commands. Okay, so now we're getting somewhere. In the end times, there's going to be a people who will have the mark of the beast, and those who have the mark of the beast will be thrown in the lake of fire. In Revelation, it says that those who have the mark of the beast also have the name of the beast or the number of his name. Now, before we get to the number of the name of the beast, what does it mean to have the name of the beast? Remember, those who have the name of God in their foreheads are the ones who will reflect his character, his Ten Commandments. Because a name in the Bible symbolically means a title or character of a person. The title or character of a person. For God, His law is the transcript of His character, so His name is also His law. And if we reflect God's character, we are also obeying His commandments, His law. His Ten Commandments. And this is how we can have the name of God on our foreheads because we are reflecting His character by obeying His Ten Commandments. Your rule, your rule is also your character. The parents, for the parents out there, if you give rules to your children, those are the same exact rules that you keep yourselves. Right? If I tell my daughter to wash her hands before she eats, I tell her this because I do it myself. If I tell her to, to eat uh, fruits and vegetables, I tell her this because I do it myself. So the very rules that I give to my daughter, I keep it myself. Why? Because it is my character. It is embedded in my character. I do wash my hands before I eat. I do eat fruits and vegetables. I look both ways before crossing the street. So when I have my daughter with me, I would also want her to look both ways before we cross the street. 
the very rules that I have, the, the very rules that I give to my daughter are the very rules that I myself keep. They are my character. It is my character. And so the very rules and laws and commandments that God gives us are the very rules that He keeps Himself because He does not sin. He does not transgress His own law. He does not transgress His own law. It is His character. It is the transcript of His character, the Ten Commandments. So if we bear the name of God on our foreheads, it is exactly because we are reflecting His character, which is the Ten Commandments. We are obeying His Ten Commandments. So if we obey the Ten Commandments, we bear His name, His title, His character. So for those who have the name of the beast, they will also reflect the character of the beast. And what is the character of the beast? Who's the beast? The papacy. And what is the papacy? An apostate church. A professed church of God who claim to follow God, but is in apostasy. They actually change or tried to, intended to change God's law. It's an apostate entity. So those who bear the name of the papacy will also be in apostasy just like the papacy. Do you get what I'm saying? The very character of the papacy is to be defiant against God's Ten Commandments. That is the character of the papacy. So the very people who bear the name or the character of the papacy are also going to be in defiance against God's Ten Commandments. This is what it means to have the name of the beast, to have the character of the beast. So those who have the mark of the beast or the name of the beast or the number of his name are going to be the ones who will be thrown in the lake of fire. Now what is the number of the name of the beast? Now remember, again, a name is the character or title of the beast. So if the papacy is the beast and the papacy has a man in charge, the Pope, and the number of the name of the beast is 603 score and 6 or 666, and it is the number of man, and that man is from the beast or the papacy. Is that man President Putin? No. Do we have to count the number of the name of Putin? No. What about, the, what about President Trump or the next president after that? Do we have to count the number of the name of President Trump? No. No, we don't. No, obviously, that would be the man that's in charge or the head or the spokesperson of the beast, which is the papacy. We would have to count the number of the name or the title of the Pope. Make sense? Okay, so now what does it mean that we have to count the number of the name of the Pope? Is it Pope Francis? Do we have to count the number of the name Francis? Not necessarily, because remember, a name in the Bible is the title or the character of a person. So what is the title of the seat and office of the Pope? Check this out. The title of the Pope officially is Vicarious Filii Dei. Guess what that means? The Vicar of the Son of God. Who is the Son of God? Christ. What does Vicar mean? Replacement. So the Pope's official title is the Replacement Christ. The Replacement of the Son of God. What's another word for the word replacement? Anti. Anti. 
so if the Pope is the replacement Christ, and another word for replacement is anti, then the Pope is the anti-Christ. Anti-Christ. Now check this out. The title Vicarious Filii Dei, it is Latin. And Latin was the language prominent in Rome. And in Rome, the characters, they have, it's numerical. Some of the Roman characters or letters are equal to numbers. But in Roman characters, there is no letter or character U. They replace it with a V. They use a V for the letter U. Now, if you count the title, Vicarious Filii Dei, in Roman numerals, tell me what you come up with. Tell me what you come up with. 666. Vicarious Filii Dei. The name or the title of the Pope adds up to 603 score and 6. So there really is no debate. There is only one entity in the world that fit all characteristics, all the characteristics of the beast. We now know the beast is the papacy, and it's very simple to understand if we really read the Bible and study Bible prophecy and compare it to history. We have narrowed it down to the papacy as the beast, and if the papacy is the beast, then we have to look for and count the number of the name of the man in charge of the beast. There really is no way you can miss this unless you don't want to believe it then your brain will create all kinds of excuses as to why this isn't so. And I say this very humbly. I say this very humbly. The next question that comes to my mind is why the forehead or the right hand? Why is the seal of God and the mark of the beast on the forehead or the right hand? Deuteronomy 6, starting from verse 1. Now these are the commandments and statutes and the judgments which the Lord your God commanded to teach you, that ye might do them in the land whither ye go to possess it, that thou mightest fear the Lord thy God to keep all his statutes and his commandments which I command thee, thou and thy son and thy son's son, all the days of thy life, and that thy days may be prolonged. And these words which I command thee this day shall be in thine hearts, and thou shalt teach them diligently unto thy children, and shalt talk of them when thou sittest in thine house, and when thou walkest by the way, and when thou liest down, and when thou risest up, and thou shalt bind them for a sign or a signature upon thine hand, and they shall be as frontlets between thine eyes. You shall bind them upon your hand and frontlets between your eyes. That's the forehead. Hebrews 10 and verse 16, talking about the new covenant. This is the covenant that I will make with them after those days, saith the Lord. I will put my laws into their hearts and in their minds will I write them. God will write his laws. God will write his 10 commandments in our minds. God will write His Ten Commandments, His name, His character, the transcript of His character, the Ten Commandments. God will write them with His own finger in our minds. Foreheads. Foreheads. 
Romans 7 and verse 25, I thank God through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then with the mind, I myself serve the law of God. We serve God's law with our minds because every action starts with a thought. Our actions start with a thought. Our obedience start here. Our obedience start here. Our obedience to the law, our obedience to God's Ten Commandments start here. God will write His name, His character, the Ten Commandments, which are the transcripts of God's character in our minds. In our minds. Did you know that every action comes from our belief? Every action we make are determined by our beliefs. And if we believe to obey God, it'll show through our actions. If we have faith in God, if we are faithful to God, it'll show through our actions. How? By obeying God's commandments. Psalm 17 and verse 7. Show thy marvelous loving kindness, O thou that savest by thy right hand them which put their trust in thee from those that rise up against them. Now, why does this particular verse say that God saves with the right hand? God could save with his right hand or left hand or right foot or left foot, etc., etc. God can use anything. But what the Bible is saying here is that God can save through his actions. The right hand is symbolic for actions. The Bible uses the right hand symbolically because the right hand is most associated with someone's action. Psalms 44 verses 1 through 3. We have heard with our ears, O God, our fathers have told us what work thou didst in their days in the times of old, how thou didst drive out the heathen with thy hand and planted them, how thou didst afflict the people and cast them out, for they got not the land in possession by their own sword, neither did their own arm save them, but the right hand and thine arm and the lights of thy countenance because thou hadst a favor unto them. Here it talks about God's work of saving his people and that his people didn't save themselves with their own arms, but it was God's right hand, his work, his action that saved them. We cannot save ourselves with our own works or actions. God saves us through his works and his actions, and it was the right hand symbolically. So the right hand is symbolic for someone's works or actions. Ecclesiastes 9 and verse 10, Whatsoever thy hand findeth to do, do it with thy might. So the forehead represents your faith and your beliefs and your thoughts, and it will propel you to take the necessary action according to your beliefs and your thoughts. And the right hand represents your actions. So those who love God will put it in their minds to worship God by obeying His commandments, including the seventh-day Sabbath, and it will show through their actions. Those who worship the papacy in their minds will obey the commandments of the papacy, including Sunday sacredness, and it will show through their actions. Now, this does not mean that those who observe Sunday sacredness already right now at this moment have the mark of the beast. Revelation says that when it is caused or enforced and whoever complies to it, that's when they receive the mark of the beast. Because by that time, they will have no other choice. They're going to have to choose at that time. 
when that law is passed, they're going to have to choose. They're going to have to choose. So remember, worship is a very integral part of the end times. People will be divided into two groups, those who worship God and those who worship the beast. Those who worship God will obey God and those who worship the beast will obey the beast. Those who worship God will obey his commandments. Those who worship the beast will obey the beast's commandments or laws. We now know that those who have the seal of God will obey the commandments of God and those who have the mark of the beast will obey the commandments of the beast. In the papal ten commandments, commandment number two about bowing down to idols is completely taken out. It makes sense because in the Catholic Church, they bow down to statues and even pray to statues, the statues of saints. I'm not saying this to make fun, but it's true. And since the second commandment is gone, the third commandment about using God's name in vain became the second commandment and the Sabbath commandment became the third commandment. And even that they tried to change. They say that we need to keep the Lord's Day now and then they claim the Lord's Day to be Sunday. Biblically, that is not true. Isaiah 58 and verse 13, If thou turn away thy foot from the Sabbath from doing thy pleasure on my holy day and call the Sabbath a delight, the holy of the Lord, honorable, and shalt honor him, not doing thine own ways, nor finding thine own pleasure, nor speaking thine own words, then shalt thou delight thyself in the Lord. Who's talking here? The Lord is talking. And what does he call the Sabbath? His day. So then biblically, the Sabbath is the Lord's day, not Sunday. Not Sunday. God's day is the Sabbath. And what does the papacy claim to be their sign or signature or mark of authority? Sunday. Sunday is the papacy's day. In fact, Lucius Ferraris, Prompta Bibliotheca, Volume 6, in a section titled Papa, Article 2, this is the quote, The Pope can modify divine law since his power is not of man but of God and he acts as vicegerent of God upon earth. So this entity even think that they have the power to modify or interpret divine laws. That is why Sunday is the mark of their authority. It is because they think that by changing the Sabbath to Sunday, they are exercising their power of authority over God and His Word. But we all know that nobody has power and authority over God. So what about the buying and selling? How will this be implemented with Sunday worship? Did you guys know that God prohibits buying and selling on the Sabbath? Nehemiah 10 and verse 31, And if the people of the land bring ware or any victuals on the Sabbath day to sell, that we would not buy it of them on the Sabbath. Nehemiah 13, in those days saw I in Judah some treading wine presses on the Sabbath and bringing in sheaves and lading asses as also wine, grapes and figs and all manner of burdens which they brought into Jerusalem on the Sabbath day. And I testified against them in the day wherein they sold victuals. 
there dwelt men of Tyre also therein, which brought fish and all manner of ware, and sold on the Sabbath unto the children of Judah and in Jerusalem. Then I contended with the nobles of Judah, and said unto them, What evil thing is this that ye do, and profane the Sabbath day? Did not your fathers thus, and did not our God bring all this evil upon us and upon this city? Yet ye bring more wrath upon Israel by profaning the Sabbath. So God prohibits buying and selling on the Sabbath. Why? Well, God commanded us not to work on the Sabbath, unless, of course, you are healing people and doing medical work. That's fine, because Jesus said it is lawful to do good on the Sabbath. It's lawful to heal on the Sabbath. So anyway, if we aren't working on the Sabbath, we aren't selling on the Sabbath. Neither are we buying on the Sabbath, because then if we do, we are causing others to work on the Sabbath. God said to keep the Sabbath holy. So if God allows for buying and selling on work days, then prohibits people from buying and selling on a certain day, which is the Sabbath, will the devil have a counterfeit? Will he have a system that prohibits people from buying and selling as well? And how does this go hand in hand with Sunday keeping? Did you guys know that it's already happening? It's already happening right now as we speak. They started doing this in Poland. They're gonna start doing this in Greece, in Germany, and in France. It's only a matter of time. In From Babylon to America Part 1, we have talked about the Blue Laws. The Blue Laws prohibits the buying and selling on Sunday. The question now is, how will they enforce this? And how will they implement this in the future? And if they do implement this in the future, is it gonna get so bad? that they're going to start persecuting and killing those who keep the commandments of God, the true commandments of God, Sabbath included. How are they going to do this? So what was that famous phrase, those who fail to learn from the past are doomed to repeat it? Revelation 13, starting from verse 15, says that life will be given to the image of the beast, the persecuting union of church and state, and that it should both speak, make laws and legislations, and cause, enforce those laws and legislations, that as many as would not worship this image, that means that those who do not obey the commandments or laws of this union of church and state, this false worship, should be killed. And he causeth or he will enforce all both small and great, rich and poor, free and bond to receive a mark, that's Sunday keeping, in their right hand, that's through their actions or in their foreheads, through their thinking or belief system and faith. Verse 17 says that no man might buy or sell, save he or except he that had the mark, those who keep Sunday, or the name of the beast, those who have the apostate character of the papacy and keep the commandments of the papacy, mainly Sunday keeping, or the number of his name, that would be 666. Remember the name or the title of the Pope is Vicarious Filii Dei, which adds up to 666, and that name and title, Vicarious Filii Dei, translated in English is Antichrist. 
So the number 666 really represents the character or title or name Antichrist. So then that number represents the apostate anti-Christian character of the papacy. So then when the Sunday law is enforced and you accept the keeping of Sunday instead of the Sabbath, you have just accepted the number 666 which represents the Pope's anti-Christian name, character and title Vicarious Filii Dei or Antichrist in English to be written in your forehead. You have just let the Pope sign the signature of his name and his disobedient, defiant and apostate character in your mind instead of letting God sign the signature of his name and faithful character, the Ten Commandments, in your mind. It's all about worship. Who do you obey? Whose character do you reflect? Do you display true worship or are you participating in false worship? America will soon tell its citizens to make a likeness of the papacy, a persecuting union of church and state, and this union will speak and enact the same laws and commandments of the beast which is the papacy. And that same law is mainly Sunday worship. They will enforce Sunday worship and those who do not obey this law or commandment will not have the mark of the beast and will not be able to buy or sell and will eventually be killed. So then this means there will be a system in place where they can tell who are those who keep Sunday and have the mark and only they will be able to buy and sell. Are we on the verge of this today? Now some have already heard me talk about this before. In almost 50 states and even other parts of the world, we have a legislation called the Blue Laws. Blue Laws are also known as Sunday Laws. They are laws designed to restrict or ban some or all Sunday activities for religious reasons, particularly to promote the observance of a day of worship or rest, instituting the sacredness of Sunday. Now these blue laws or national Sunday laws are already in the law books across America and around the world, but are not yet being enforced today. It was being enforced a long time ago, but they stopped enforcing it. There will come a time where they will enforce it again heavily with the main objective of resting on Sunday and banning the buying and selling on Sunday. Have there been efforts to enforce this law? The fact is that the enemy unseen have been subtly hinting at the enforcement of a Sunday law. Pope Francis says this in July of 2014, Catholic.org, never on a Sunday. Pope Francis says working on Sunday has negative effects on families. Maybe it's time to ask ourselves if working on Sunday is true freedom, he said. The Pope also said that spending Sundays with family and friends is an ethical choice for faithful and non-faithful alike. He's including atheists in this Sunday observance. In the Catholic News Agency, August 12, 2015, the headline reads, Pope Francis, Sundays are a gift from God. Francis pointed to Sunday as a particularly important time for rest because in them we find God, he says. He stressed this in the context of his September 26 speech in Philadelphia at the World Meeting of Families. 
Thus, there is no doubt that stressing Sunday is high on the Pope's agenda. As a matter of fact, they already started this in Poland. One Sunday out of the month, buying and selling is banned. Of course, except for gas stations and things of that nature. But by this year, two Sundays out of the month, buying and selling will be banned. And by 2020, by year 2020, Sunday shopping will be banned indefinitely in Poland. A lot of Christians don't even know what's going on and it's happening right under their noses. Their radar for truth have missed it because the majority of Christians today, their thinking have been infiltrated by false doctrine that comes from the very church they protested years ago. They are looking every which way, yet behind the scenes, they miss the inner workings and the, the pre-production of a coming Sunday law. They are looking at barcodes and computer chips on the one hand of false doctrine, which is totally misdirecting them and distracting them from paying attention to what the other hand is doing behind the scenes. Headlines all over the world. Headlines all over the world are asking for a Sunday law. And Christians look at this and they don't even know if it is a good thing or a bad thing. They're in a state of confusion, a mind state of confusion. Babylonian thinking. Well, how do you get a nation or even the whole world to unite and comply with a Sunday law? You know, every time there is a natural disaster, riots and wars, food and water and other necessary supplies become limited. What if more natural disasters come and limits our necessities? People would die. There would be economic crisis. We saw it ourselves. The world is almost ripe for the taking. The world is almost ready to accept a worldwide peace. How many more disasters is it going to take? How many more riots and wars and rumors of wars is it going to take? Where people are just going to be tired of it and they're going to look for a leader to unite the world. They're gonna look for a leader to bring peace on earth because things are just getting out of hand. I mean, think about it. We have, we have people versus people, gang versus gang, religion versus religion, country versus country, army versus army, and everyone diverse, everyone different from each other different lifestyles and different religions. The only way to bring true peace is to let God be our leader, but everyone is so different and diverse. They're not going to want the God of the Bible. They want another leader, one who can accommodate their own beliefs. They're going to want a leader who can unite this belief with that belief or that religion with this religion or this lifestyle with that lifestyle. They're going to want someone universal. They want someone who will even accept atheistic beliefs, the Big Bang Theory and evolution. Has there been someone working to unite different beliefs, different religions, different kinds of people and different lifestyles? This president with that president, this country leader with that country leader. Have there been someone doing this? The world is looking for someone to admire. 
The world is looking for a leader to unite these other groups of people, no matter how much they differ in belief and lifestyle. The world will be looking for someone, a leader, that they can admire so much that they are not going to want to make war with him and will do as he says in order to bring peace in the world, for him to unite the world for the common good of the people. Now the Bible says that the world will wander after the beast. The word wandered means that the world admired the beast. And who can make war with him? No one. Why? Because he is so admired. All he wants to do is bring peace in the world and unite the world even at the cost of the truth of God's word. Now what if this particular religious leader comes out and says that all these natural disasters are a judgment from God and it's because we sinned against God with all these riots and mass shootings and racism and legalized gay marriage that these disasters are happening and limiting our daily necessities and supplies. Let's all unite under one umbrella to worship God again for the common good. Atheists can join. Atheists can join. Even, even if you don't believe in God, we need to band together for the common good. Mandatory. Why? Because we need our daily necessities. Food and water and other important supplies. We can't afford more natural disasters, they're going to say. We can't afford to lose our livelihood and the things that support our lives each and every day. They're going to come to the conclusion that we all need to keep Sunday in order to appease God so that He gives back the rain, so that He doesn't send judgments anymore. And when disaster still strikes after campaigning for Sunday, who are they going to blame? Sabbath keepers the true followers of God. When that drought happened and that famine happened during Elijah's time, who did King Ahab blame? Elijah. Elijah, the true follower of God. The one who told King Ahab that he must obey God's commandments. Think about it. If more disasters occur and we run out of our necessities, they will need to ration and limit our spending. It's to those Sabbath keepers, they're going to say. It's to those Sabbath keepers that do not comply with our Sunday worship that is causing God to send judgment upon earth. That's what they're going to say. This is what they're going to say. I mean, how desperate do people have to get? How much loss of necessities can people take before the future becomes a whole witch hunt for Sabbath keepers? Can you see it? It's only going to be a matter of time. What if that one religious leader says only those who keep Sundays and want to uphold the good of society or the common good can buy and sell? Those who don't keep Sunday limit their spending because they are not helping our cause. Think about it. The mark of the beast is not some microchip or barcode. It's a spiritual mark. It's a spiritual mark on a person that indicates that he is a worshiper or an obeyer of the laws and the commandments of the beast, the papacy, and his image. Well, 
How is this spiritual mark gonna limit our buying and spending? Do microchips have something to do with it? Maybe they can freeze our credit cards and debit cards. Maybe those who put their allegiance towards the beast or the papacy need to have it shown on their identification cards. Let me offer a thought. Greece in the year 2015 and in the month of June, due to some economic or financial crisis, the Greek government was forced to immediately close Greek banks for almost 20 days and also implemented controls on their bank transfers and limits on cash withdrawals. And they did this to avoid complete collapse of the Greek banking system. Initially, account holders were only allowed to withdraw 60 euros a day. That's $70 a day. And if they missed one withdrawal, they were unable to get the cash another day. They don't need to use a microchip to hold your money and limit your spending. All they got to do is freeze your bank accounts. They're going to come up with a way to know if you are a Sabbath keeper or a Sunday keeper. And if you are a Sabbath keeper, they will limit your spending. It all boils down to one thing. The Bible says that it all boils down to one thing and that is worship. Who do you obey? Who do you obey? You're going to obey God and His commandments or are you going to obey the beast and His commandments? God risked His eternal life for you. He risked His Son's eternal life for you. The Pope can't risk His eternal life for you because the Pope does not have eternal life. After all of this, we have one question. Who do you give your allegiance to? The one that can give you temporary peace and safety or the one that can give you eternal life? Praise God always. The time is at hand. Please help us spread the word. At schoolforprofits.tv, you will find a spread the word button where you can download one minute trailers of this prophecy movie from America to Babylon. Download the trailers and help us get the message out there by uploading the trailers on all social media. You can do it on Facebook, Twitter, IG, TikTok, and or YouTube, letting everyone know where they can watch this prophecy movie from America to Babylon. You are now a prophecy student. Invite others to class at schoolforprofits.tv. So I'm finally face to face with the bride. It would be an honor to serve you. But it was written that you wore white. Today you wear scarlet and purple. And this is the kingdom he left you on earth. I'm trying to just search through what looks like garbage and dirt too. And I noticed that some of your people and audience prefer to trample on your husband's commands. 
Now doesn't that bother and irk you? I know that it's been a while since the king left to do some work and he's gone up to heaven now. And it's as if you already want to forget about his honor and wedding vows. Who are you? Aren't you his bride? How come your faith isn't set in stone? Wait a minute, you're not the bride that I've read about. You are just a clone. I mean, you claim to be his wife, but you're holding hands with an imposter who acts like he's the Christ so much that they should be handing him an Oscar. You got your people so drunk and delusional. If we gave them the truth, they would rather not want to see that they're actually caught in these acts of apostasy. The Bible specifically calls this travesty harlotry cup full of abominations, drunken with the blood of the saints. Now I know who you are. You massacred God's people until they looked like they were covered in paint. Even your palms got the stains and they even call you insane because you make audacious claims that the law you can change. You should be appalled and ashamed. You even got your daughters in blame because they are blindly following you, doing all in the same and now it is global. Aren't you afraid of the hellfire you know that will roast you? You bow to idols. You should have been bowing to the king like you know you're supposed to and now he vows to dispose you. You're not the bride, she wears white. You wear scarlet and purple, arrayed with a bunch of ornaments, silver, bronze, and gold too, but there was no beauty in you, not even a drop or a morsel, and this is how you rebel against God's law and proposal. You fornicate with many nations like harlots and whores do. You lead many to their destruction, and don't even care that the Father has cursed you and all who have served you, you are obviously boastful. I pray that someone would come to take away all your self-righteous garments and robes too, pull them off and expose you. Who are you?